is co-discovery. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Core Discovery podcast with me, Abigail Acton. Today, we'll be talking about innovations in European healthcare in the wake of COVID-19. Healthcare professionals working flat out for a year, living through experiences nothing could really prepare them for, health systems stressed a breaking point, a population facing fear, insecurity and grief without the human contact to make these bearable. The pandemic will cast a long shadow. Dr. Hans Klug, the World Health Organization's Europe director, warns we are facing a growing mental health crisis, the impact of which is likely to be long-term and far-reaching. Can technology help ease the burden on healthcare providers when it comes to treating mental health challenges post-COVID? Prevention being better than cure, now more than ever, can next-generation sensors help people recognize and anticipate their mental conditions, making them easier to cope with? Having been deprived of much human contact over the last year, will people want to turn to devices for insights, or will they be more dependent now on healthcare professionals? And how can Europe's financially stretched health systems identify what new devices to provide, which will benefit patients, and which have limited use? The looming post-COVID mental health crisis makes insights from today's guests more valuable than ever. Welcome to Lars Montelius, the Director General of the International Iberian Nanotechnology Laboratory. He is the Professor of Nanotechnology at Lund University, Sweden. Lars is also the founder of several Swedish companies working in the field. The interface between nanotechnology and life sciences is one of his many interests. Hello, everyone. Corinna Sass, Professor of Human-Computer Interaction and Digital Health in the School of Computing and Communications at Lancaster University, is interested in human-to-computer interactions in which emotional information is communicated by the user. Mental health technologies are one of her interests. She coordinates the EU-supported Affect Tech Innovation Training Network. Hello. Eleanor Phillips is based at the Hamburg Center for Health Economics. Eleanor is a managing director of the ICQE project, which received funding under the EU's Horizon 2020 program. Her areas of interest include digital health and mobile health research, with particular focus on digital interventions for mental health. Uh, hello also from my side, and thank you for inviting me. Alexander Tobika, Associate Professor at the Department of Social and Political Sciences, is the Director of Center for Research for Health and Social Care Management, CERGAS, at Bocconi University in Milan. She is the President of Italian Health Economics Association, AIES. Alexandra is particularly interested in the impact of economic analysis on decision-making in healthcare and has been recently focusing on exploring different methods of analyzing this interplay. Alexandra was involved in the EU's COMED project. Hello, everyone. Nice to be here with you. Hello and welcome, everybody. Lars, if I could start with you. Nanotechnology and nanoscience are fascinating areas and, and uh, frontiers in, in ongoing research and science. There seems to be so much potential um, and capacity for these technologies that we're really just touching the tip of the iceberg. Can I ask you how they are being harnessed to create the next generation of sensors? Could you tell us a little more about the potential of, of these technologies and the benefit that they can bring to sensors and medical devices? Yes. So first of all, I would like to say that sensors, they are really a part of the digitalization. So digitalization is about data and processing data. But in order to have some data to process, you need to measure something. So that's where the sensors come in. And now as a consequence of the microelectronics and nanoelectronics, these sensors can be 
very small and they can also be very affordable and they can be very precise and tailored to a certain specific function. And they could be invasive or they could be non-invasive. May I stop and you for a second and ask you what you mean by invasive and non-invasive? Yeah, a typical non-invasive is something you have on your body, for instance, if you talk about a health sensor. An invasive could be something that you have inside your body. It could be right. a pacemaker. Or right, implanted or, or not implanted. Implantable, yes. right, mm. if you talk about the body. It could also be in other bodies, not human bodies, right? It could be implanted in machines, etc., etc. So, but these sensors are, of course, very important. And now with the, the increased speed of communication from the sensors to some kind of decision platform or some kind of orchestrating layer in your mobile phone, your user experience or whatever, the speed of the communication enable these sensors to take real-time decisions. And that's what makes autonomous driving possible in the future, because we will have now with the 5G the possibility to have a car being taken decisions by itself on the edge. But also real-time prompts to the user or the person who's, who's gaining the Correct. data. Okay, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. And how does yeah. nanotechnology and nanoscience fit into making these more, um, I can only think of the French word performant, more powerful? Well, I mean, this is the whole basis for sensors because they are based on materials and you, you kind of tune the materials properties to get a certain function. For instance, if you would like to measure pH or glucose level in blood or whatever. So you tune them for something specific and you use as little material as possible to make them small. So they'd be, I mean, easy to integrate, but also with the function you need. And that where is nanotechnology is all about is to understand the material properties at the nanoscale and tailor them to a certain function. And then of course, I mean, when you have these sensors and they are connected, I mean, in a connected layer with each other, talking with each other like IoT products or what we nowadays call nano-IoT products. They will exchange the information and that network in turn will be able to give information to a user and nudge you to do certain things. So you can think about these connected sensors as a, as a kind of a, a network that is, a, let's call a, a guardian angel for you. It will, it will nudge you to avoid dangers. And these dangers could be in traffic, but they could also be dangers in your health. So almost like a safety net, one could think. Yeah. I mean, you could think it like a safety net or uh, these kind of uh, safety pillows that blows up in the car. But, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Right. So it's, it's kind of, you don't see it, but when you need it, you will notice it. And so the nanotechnology element, of course, is, is the ability to both reduce in size and also, I imagine, enhance in performance. Yeah. So the reduction in size plus the enhanced performance. And the reduction of cost. Right, yes, because less material. Which enable the possibility to deploy them in, in large scale. Right. And how could these be used in health surveillance? Since today we are interested in health in a post-COVID world, how could these be used in that application? Yeah, I mean, you can, you can think about them of... Uh, collecting all these kind of different data, right? So the data could be collected through, through your skin, for instance, glucose level, or it could also be through some body liquids. So you can imagine a contact lens, which has a glucose sensor measuring the glucose level in your tear liquid, for instance. And all these data could be integrated in your body for some, in, for, in some instances, if you are having some kind of surgical treatment, you could place a sensor there if you like. But I think the most important thing is the pattern that is generated by this data. 
And that is specific one specific person. And then compared with all the other population, of course, and it's a variation of the data that gives you the early warning. Right. And that could be done to tell you you're soon getting sick. Okay. So you can actually be prevented and stay healthy rather than getting sick and you need to go to the care. So it's a kind of a turning the the health system upside down, right? Yes, basically prevention being better than cure. So starting with the sensors and then have a healthy living yeah. and avoid going to hospitals. In the first place, which of course after the coronavirus crisis is more important than ever with health systems. It is, for sure. Facing such enormous backlogs right. of non-related COVID conditions. Uh-huh. Yeah, so I think in this perspective, I think the, the interesting thing with I mean, a virus or so is that with these sensors being, for instance, in the sewage system, in an elderly care or hospital, or even in your homes, in, in the air, in your home, etc., that can provide information about the spread of the, of the, of the infection. Right? The, the, and that will give information, of course, to the collective or to society, but also to you as a person. So it's all about the connectivity. So by having them connected, the society can take advantage and you yourself can take advantage of the specific things. And so I think here there is a high, very interesting possibility for the future to have these kind of systems to help you to monitor air quality, for instance, in your home or in your office or in the hotel room or whatever. So I think this is the, this is the um, possibility for the future. Yeah, great potential, great potential. And and thank you, Lars. And, and um, this kind of takes us to, Corinna, your area of interest, um, which is uh, you were involved in the in the EU-supported AFTEC project, uh, which uh, tried to develop prototypes to demonstrate how sensors can help people manage mental health challenges. Obviously, with the pressure that we've all been under, mental health is a, an issue that concerns many more people than perhaps before the, the, the crisis. So this is more relevant than ever. Um, talking, as Lars was, about the use of sensors to to allow people to behave proactively. What parameters were the sensors tracking in your Affect Tech project and how could people benefit from the insight provided? That's a very good question, Abigail. Um, We used particularly biosensors measuring perspiration and heart rate. And these are bodily functions that operate without conscious control. Uh, perspiration is a sensitive indicator of changes in the intensity of our emotional responses. And another one is heart rate, measuring the number of times our heart beats per minute. And for example, under stress, we experience higher emotional intensity, which leads to increase in the sweat and heart rate. A little bit of what's happening with me right now. Um, in our work, we did capture these changes of emotional arousal through biosensors. And their main benefit is bringing these unconscious bodily processes to our awareness and ultimately under our control, conscious control. Um, Biofeedback provides people access to biodata that signals, for instance, this sharp increase in emotional intensity during stress. And by accessing such data, People might learn to consciously control these specific bodily functions. So you're, you're giving people the information they need in order to be able to recognize that they might have some sort of crisis coming. Um, 
What did the project actually develop? Did you develop the sensors themselves? And, and if so, did you find that there was any market interest in these? Um, so we, we often use uh, commercial sensors, but we worked at the level of what we call the way they are represented, actuation. And um, I can give you a couple of examples of the stuff that we are developing with a range of research prototypes. Um, a few of those are wearable devices to be worn on the wrist. Uh, for this, we have used biosensors, again, uh, the ones measuring perspiration or heart rate, and we integrated them with novel interfaces for representing biodata. And we used color, vibration, or temperature-based biofeedback. Bio so when people experience, for example, an increase in their emotional arousal, they can immediately see, feel, on their skin, this feedback, which can be either static or animated shapes, changing colors, could be subtle vibrations or gentle warmth. Right. And this biofeedback helps them to become more emotionally aware. Right. And and with that awareness, is you know, the data and the access to data is fascinating. And of course, we're exposed, if I can use the word exposed, to more and more data. There's data everywhere. What makes these devices very interesting is that there is a dimension where, where people can harness that data to actually change their behavior slightly. Otherwise, it's just data. So um, did your devices also come with some kind of mechanism that would inform the user what perhaps would be a useful thing to do at a certain point, like take a step back and, and, and breathe? deeply for five minutes or something like that. How did that work? That's a very good point because, of course, uh, emotional awareness is just the first step. Um, to address exactly what you are suggesting, we developed other interfaces, other types of interfaces, providing visual and haptic, again, representation of slow breathing and slow heart rate to help people actually lower them and calm down. Um, and we built some smartwatch applications guiding people to slow down their breathing rate. Uh, we use visualizations uh, through which people can inhale and exhale following, for example, a slowly expanding and contracting circle. Um, and another smartwatch application delivers vibrations that are 40% lower than users' current heart rate in order to guide them to lower theirs. Yeah, and that's very interesting, isn't it? That's almost like a target to reach, but... Yes, in a way that's perhaps more calming than thinking of the word target, which automatically is competitive and therefore not very tranquilizing. But yes, it's it's almost like you're following the lead of of something that is showing you what 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 direction you should be going in. Yeah, like something's holding your hand almost. It's on your wrist, but it's almost holding your hand. Yeah, absolutely. It's a lot of comfort in that in that gesture. Indeed. Um, thank you. And are you finding that there's much interest in, in market take-up? How, how is that going? Yes, uh, we are pleased to say that these devices have been recognized as innovative by the EC's Innovation Radar Prize. And we are now focusing on taking them to the next stage needed for the market. We receive some interest. We, have in, we are in conversations with potential investors. But I like to take this opportunity as a call for interest. <laughs> to reach out to us um, if possible because uh, I think it's exciting work which deserves to, 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 to move forward. Absolutely, absolutely. No, please do. Anybody interested, then, then contact Corinna. Very good idea. Um, Lars and Corinna, you've been talking about um, sensors, the technology behind the sensors and the application of, of that information and that data to benefit the user. Could I ask you all if you would have any questions to Lars or Corinna or you might have questions for each other uh, about this aspect of today's um, conversation? I mean, there is one aspect that I think is interesting to, to think about. And I think 
I mean, now in in this uh, in in the sense that we discussed, it's something that nudge the person, the individual, of course, to take better decisions. Let's call it like that, right? Or or behave better or whatever. The other aspect is, of course, who owns the digital data and who can take advantage of that? Who can valorize it? Who can sell it, etc.? So my data, I should own it, right? Not the guy who make the device or give the software to me that, that I have a, some kind of relation with, right? So I think, and this is questions that is not yet really discussed, right? No. In my mind, at least, what I know. Right? No, I think you're right. It's, it's because it's also cutting edge and new. We're almost yeah. at the stage where the technology is overtaking society's reactions to the technology. Yeah. Indeed. No, I think it's individual is fine because I, I get the information so I can, I can behave better so I have a better life, whatever, right? So it's fine. But there is also another dimension to this, and that is how if someone else is taking advantage of that, then I would also like to have a piece of that pie. Right? Sure. Yeah, of course. How is it going to be marketed? Yes. Is it going to be useful for someone to contact you and tell you that it looks like you're going to need more um, <laughs> more diazepam or something because you seem to be stressed? Yeah. Yes, exactly. Okay, very interesting. Any other questions for Lars and Corinna? I yes. have a question. Yes. Please, Eleanor. Yes. But actually, it could go for both for Corinna and Lars. Um, I'm interested in acceptability from from patients or from participant sites. How does it feel to, to wear sensors? How do people respond to this? I would be interested. Uh, did you make any studies on this? And uh, another question to Corinna. Mm, I wonder this awareness of the uh, of the emotion how does it change the emotion i was thinking of did you make any surveys on that or any investigations yes um so to answer the last question the awareness of emotions yes when people become aware they start to understand a little bit about the process of understanding where emotions came from what has caused it try to see patterns between similar contexts that have led to the same kind of negative feelings and realize in a very visceral way the importance of stepping back, breathing in, breathing out, relaxing, even without the regulatory aspects implemented directly on the, on the, on the, on the stack. So even those supporting just emotional awareness offline support people regulation as well, prompt people to regulate. Yeah. So basically, it's providing a context for people to recognize perhaps that there's a pattern. So you could think, well, I feel fine in a certain situation, then in fact, perhaps you are not as fine as you think you are. So the next time you're in that situation, perhaps you realize that you need to, to take a step back. Lars, going back to you, I mean, we were talking about nanosciences and nanotechnology and the right. benefit of that being that things are shrinking in size. Absolutely. I mean, I'm an Apple Watch wearer and I'm quite mm -hmm. comfortable in my Apple Watch, but it does feel a little like I've got a computer on my wrist. I mean, you know, do you feel a little self-conscious, especially if I take mm -hmm. a call on my wrist, I feel like an idiot. Um, um, right. What's the future for, for these type of wearables? Are they going to get ever smaller? I think that will be both smaller maybe and also integrated in different ways. I mean, one of the most, I think one of the most interesting sensors that do very much, If it, I mean, the Apple Watch is a sensor in a way because they measure a lot of things, right? Besides being a, a watch and a, information provider, a personal digital assistant, whatever. But there are other kind of form factors now with rings, for instance, that give the same kind of thing that you can wear as a ring. And I think the the acceptance is really to find what is social acceptable, so to say, right? Because I mean, nowadays, more and more people are having what I have. 
I mean, earphones and you are going in the street and talking with yourself, etc. And it's becoming acceptable, right? Which was not the case when I was a kid. It was totally unacceptable if you would do that. So I think the the it will change, but I think it will be integrated more and more in different things. And you can have sensors in your in your fabrics, in your clothes. Uh, you can have it um, under the skin. I mean, you can have tattoos being printed on your skin, for instance, that are sensors. And you can integrate it in in your glasses, in the uh, and so there are a lot of things. And I think the social acceptance about these kind of if you call it, in a way, it maybe it's not individually performance enhancers, but in a way it is, right? So glasses is also an individual performance enhancer, which is totally socially accepted. Hearing aids, the same. So I think it with time, it, it will not become complicated. And I think the if it is not nice to wear, no one will wear it, right? So I think the wearability, the user experience, will be the dominating factor for this. Right, absolutely, the design, yeah. Eleanor, I'm just going to turn to you now, if I may. We were talking earlier, and one of the things that we we were sort of almost laughing about was the notion that just because the technology exists, should we actually necessarily use it? So there's sometimes a feeling that, that we're able to do things, and so we do them, but we're not necessarily paying attention to to whether the people who will be using these things want them in the first place. So... um. One strand of the IQCE project analyzed how people feel about the use of technology to overcome mental health challenges. So rather than what we were talking about with Corinna about um, noticing what's going on in your body or, or, or in your reaction to stress and perhaps taking, taking action to try and mitigate that, here we're actually talking about therapies and treatment for people with mid to low level uh, mental health challenges. So can you Tell me what the IQCE project was um, seeking to establish in this particular strand of it and a little bit about your methodology. Yeah, so uh, just to maybe to give you a bit of background information, um, our research focus were so-called e-mental health interventions. And these are interventions uh, that are based on CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. And they are designed for people who have mild to moderate symptoms, and they um, they enable um, people to work by themselves uh, at their mental health problems. So, and the recent scientific evidence suggests that uh, such interventions can be effective. But uh, also, there is evidence that uh, people or patients are still quite hesitant regarding um, uptake of those interventions. So we were curious, um, why, is, why is this like this? And um, how could we maybe increase the acceptability of, of these interventions? So, um, so we wanted to, to shed a bit more light of this, of this hesitation. So we conducted the discrete choice experiments among almost 2000 participants in Germany. And um, in, this, in this experiment, uh, we wanted to see the preferences of participants for uh, singular features of those interventions. So to, to give you a concrete example, what we have done. So we defined the interventions um, by specific features like a content delivery, like um, peer support, like uh, proof of effectiveness or or human contact, or let's say form of human contact. 
And uh, human contact, I will I will go here a bit deeper. Uh, we offered several levels uh, levels of human contact, such as no human contact, human contact via email, human contact via phone call, video call, or it was the last option, uh, human contact with the psychotherapist in a traditional psychotherapy session, and the mental health e mental health interventions would be. Uh, a part of this therapy journey process so and then then we we asked people so what would you prefer and uh, well the result was surprising because the most uh, preferred uh, feature of the e-mental health interventions was human contact and then in context in context of traditional psychotherapy so basically it was a question or so about digital technology and e mental health but we came up with the strongest preference for human contact um in this area could i ask you i mean that was the patient's perspective yeah so yes we're we're interested perhaps perhaps they said but we're interested in various options and and concepts and and technological advances but what we really want to do is sit down and talk to somebody face to face um what was the therapist's reaction to the notion of blended care as we you you, you would call it uh, a mixture of e, e interventions and and uh, human intervention what did the therapist think yeah there was it was our next project we, we wanted to see the perspective of german therapists on it because there is a difference when we talk about therapist view on e mental health or blended care when you mix psychotherapy and technology there's a big difference among countries healthcare systems and among therapeutic schools so cbt therapists are naturally more open to e mental health interventions whether psychodynamic therapists or humanistic therapists are more hesitant so, and we got a similar picture in our uh, last study uh, cbt therapists were very welcoming whether psychodynamic therapists they valued um, more time more personal time with the patient um, they opted for larger shares of, of personal sessions regarding to digital uh, interventions um, but uh, both uh, therapists were um, well yeah, both, both schools in our survey were quite positive regarding this mixed uh, blended care uh, treatment form. So they were both optimistic to integrate uh, the technology into the therapeutic process. Uh, but the preference was um, as you can blend it in different in different forms, you can you, you can integrate the, the technology in the in the therapy process, or you can do it before or after therapy so the preference in our survey was to integrate digital uh, uh, digital interventions into the therapy process so the parallel the parallel running but it's an interesting idea that the that, that perhaps the digital therapy could be used also as a backup you know that people could reinforce what they had uh, come to understand or realize with the psychotherapist through a follow-up using digital uh, digital therapy and and perhaps um, games and 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 so on. That's very interesting. Thank you, Eleanor. Does anyone have any questions for Eleanor about this? Yes, Corinna. Hello, very interesting project. Um, I know that the cost of providing um, this human contact is very high, uh, and I'm just wondering what's the appetite for people to explore peer support in, in talk therapies? Uh, peer support, we basically, the levels for peer support we had was a possibility of, of an online community 
on moderated online community or um, face-to-face meetings with the moderator. But peer support didn't play such a big role. And here again was a preference for more human contact. But, but when we look at all features, peer support didn't play, didn't play a, a big role. It can be because, uh, so well, our, our hypothesis was that uh, mental health is quite, for some people, stigmatized topic. So there is not this big openness to, to connect with a lot of people, but there is an openness to connect maybe to one to one person, like a psychotherapist. Yeah, it, it's, it feels like it's private, doesn't it? Yes, like a more intimate connection. Yeah, no, that does make sense. I think that, that would resonate. That makes sense. That interesting point, Corinna, you made about the cost. Um, this is actually Alexandra. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you very patiently. Hello. Um, this actually chimes a little bit with what you were looking at. So you were involved in the COMED project supported by the EU, which aimed to make sense of all these new devices and, and sensors and other new technologies and advances coming onto uh, the healthcare, if I can say, market by establishing ways to measure how effective they are and suggesting parameters healthcare providers can use in order to decide whether or not to offer them. Um, Since the long-term cost-effectiveness of clinical devices and sensors and everything really depends heavily on how they are adopted into routine clinical practice, if they're brand new and haven't actually been adopted that much into routine clinical practice, how can healthcare systems determine which innovative projects and devices to provide? Thank you, Abigail. Thank you very much. Uh, indeed, at the end, but uh, this is, you know, not um, usually that is the case because, you know, the, the journey of the new technologies innovation is really as we have somehow uh, followed in this podcast, like from the very, very basic research and the innovative uh, solutions to patients' uh, preferences. And then at the end, somebody has to pay for it, right? So uh, uh, what are the criteria that the policymakers uh, put in place in order to decide which technologies to cover with with limited public funds, so basically to uh, guarantee coverage and reimbursement, um, so to to face and and to overcome so-called fourth hurdle that the the innovations uh, have to make before they come come actually to the final user, which is the patient. So if you think about all the innovations that we have heard about uh, uh, through, uh, through the interventions of my colleagues here, At the end of this uh, journey, the technologies need to be evaluated across some dimensions. And policy uh, makers uh, more recently in Europe, but not only in Europe, uh, have uh, been using this framework of health technology assessment that looks into clinical effectiveness, but also cost effectiveness, economic impact of these technologies when they are used in real life, in real world, uh, uh, on the real patients. So for the medical technologies, especially for the very innovative one, like we have uh, heard about today, it is really, you know, the uncertainty around the effects in real life is huge. Once they have, you know, come to the market and they have obtained all they had to obtain in order to, uh, to get, uh, uh, you know, the market license. Uh, because this gap between the evidence that is needed, this is especially true for medical devices, not so much for pharmaceuticals. So the evidence that is needed to get the, the CE mark, for example, in Europe, to get to the market, and the evidence needed to pass the health technology assessment uh, um, uh, evaluation, uh, there's a huge gap. So what do policymakers do in front of this gap? Traditionally, you know, with a yes or no decision, so yes, we pay for it, no, we don't pay for it, the whole risk was on the burden 
of the policymakers. They take the risk of saying yes to something that is not maybe cost effective or effective at all in the real populations. If they say no, they take the risk of not granting access to patients uh, for something that potentially could really improve their lives. So the, um, this idea with this new innovative uh, uh, arrangement that was one part of COMED uh, project was that to share the risk between the manufacturer of the innovation and the policymakers with these innovative uh, policy tools, I would call them how to allow quick or quicker access to innovation, but by sharing the risk, you know, reserving some, uh, um, let's say, potential to even uh, reverse the decision in case the evidence proves uh, that the technology is not uh, good enough uh, to be used on a wider scale. And these policies are labeled uh, uh, different ways, different names in different countries. Coverage with evidence development was uh, one way that we use it, especially in Europe, uh, to label a set of policy tools that are basically what the word itself says. Uh, I grant you coverage and reimbursement provided that you generate evidence that I need to make a more robust decision. In this way, the manufacturers and producers share the risk of uh, generating the data, but also uh, obtaining uh, um, uh, safe and effective and cost-effective devices on the market. That's fascinating, and it makes absolute perfect sense. So basically, as things develop and, and the context changes because new technology emerges so so quickly now, basically what you're doing is permitting people to accept that there's a gray area, that it's not black and white. Exactly. And that we don't stall everything uh, in favor of trying to get something that is a simplistic overview, but that we acknowledge that there's some ambiguity and that we proceed and progress, but that decisions can be changed if needed. That's, I think, what you're saying. Exactly, because the, the main purpose of this coverage with evidence development schemes is really to reduce the uncertainty about the effects, whether they're clinical and economic effects of a specific technology by obtaining data on real patients, which may not be in a position to obtain for millions of reasons before the uh, technology comes to the market. The wider use is not possible before, of course, the technology is available to patients, to physicians, to hospitals. So um, uh, rather than saying no, because evidence is limited, we say something in between, as you said. So yes, but provided that you generate evidence, sometimes those decisions can be only in research. So we allow it to access a limited number of patients to conduct the more research or only with research. So wider scale, but with the research generating the data. This is especially challenging uh, for the technologies that we have discussed today. So wearables, for example, there is still no agreement on what do we actually have to measure as effectiveness of wearables because the health technology assessment framework was somehow built on pharmaceuticals, where we look at the mortality rates, we look at the, some surrogate outcomes of, you know, blood pressure or uh, other indicators, of course, that we are interested in. How do you measure whether a wearable is effective? You know, there is a whole range of dimensions that are not captured in traditional frameworks. So, you know, allowing this gray area really, you know, opens the door to evaluation of different types of technologies. And we know that medical devices, we have, you know, I think half a million of different types of technology that we label as medical devices and not the same rules can be applied to all of them. So I think also 
it must be the case that people become more courageous. Healthcare providers become more courageous because they're not locked in to financing something that, that they then decide they don't want to finance anymore. They can change their minds. One thing I was going to say also is that it must be very difficult, um, and this is perhaps for Lars and Corinna and, and Eleanor too, it must be very difficult to prove a negative, no? Because what you're saying is that if these people hadn't been wearing these devices, their condition would have would have worsened. <laughs> so with pharmaceuticals, you say, I take this tablet, I get better, things improve. But there are study designs that can that can allow you to do this analysis, okay? So I mean and so-called counterfactual or control group, you know, there are ways you can right. you can do it with a study design, but of course, you know, there are limitations to that. That's why, you know. Sometimes uh, like conducting a trial in a pre-market phase would not be feasible or even ethical for some of these uh, 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 situations. So once it's on the market, you, you, you would need to think through with the manufacturer. This is also the possibility for the manufacturer and the payer to come together, decide on the design of the study, share the risk, but also share the knowledge uh, on a specific issue, and also providers to be part of the evidence generation process, not just the recipient, but really an active actor, <laughs> protagonist, in generating evidence, which then it's not only about being, I think, courageous, but really being more involved and having more governance tools to, to allow uh, again, quicker access to something that can really improve people's life, but also um, uh, having, a, let's say, a, um, a bigger influence on how the money is being allocated, because we know that, uh, of course, that, you know, innovation, the speed of innovation is so high, but the resources are, by definition, limited. Yeah, they remain the same, even though the the amount of yeah, choices increase. Yeah, even if increased. they grow, they will never grow as fast as, as technology. You know? Yeah, as fast as the choice yeah. is provided. Can I thank you, Alexander? It's fascinating and it makes perfect sense. It's one of these wonderful things where, you know, until someone's pointed it out, you haven't thought of it. And then when someone points out that the, that the system needs a slight shift in the way that it approaches these novel technologies, it just makes perfect sense. Very logical. Um, Alexandra, I would have one more question to you. And that would be, um, did you find that uh, the, I mean, it's a little bit like a disruptive technology, your own approach, really. Did you find that, that healthcare authorities are interested in embarking in a new direction in this way? We did uh, in common project evaluate really like what are the perceptions of policymakers vis-a-vis -vis these new policy tools, because uh, so far, um, most of the, again, uh, experience has been generated in the world of pharmaceuticals, where things are a little bit more structured and controlled and uh, uh, established uh, than, uh, than in the world of medical devices. Uh, so the policymakers do recognize the great potential um, to this new uh, tools, especially in the field of medical devices, given this uncertainty that we talked about and then lack of evidence and so on. There are, however, a series of um, uh, challenges and criticalities, as always, in order to fully implement these schemes. Uh, one, you know, maybe the most important one is really resources available because this doing this properly costs <laughs> also, you know, to build up a proper coverage with evidence development scheme really requires some investment also from, uh, from policymakers. So it, it has to be worthwhile. And when is it worthwhile? When the purpose of the scheme is really to generate evidence that will be used. If for a policymaker, 
it's a you know more rational decision to just to to do some price negotiation with the manufacturers. Say whatever evidence you have, let's just talk about the price and to see what would be the best deal. To put it very simply, then it may not be worth to invest all this money in building the structure of a coverage with evidence development. But if uh, there is really a need to gap. To, to close the gap on the uncertainties of evidence, then the policymakers are very open to, uh, to you know, to these new avenues. Yeah, I'm sure. The issue of funding and availability is fundamental because different countries adopt different models. Who pays for this? Yeah. Is it, you know, is it the Ministry of Health who wants this evidence? Or again, the funding should come from the manufacturer. But what is then it for the manufacturer? What about if the results are negative and they are even being, you know, they paid for something that will then make them reverse the decision on reimbursement? So, I mean, yeah. it's not as simple. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's balance. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I can imagine that in some situations, perhaps, yeah, perhaps people would rather just negotiate the price and then walk away and have the certainty of the fact that their that their device has been adopted and, and, and that they're contractually obligated. Yeah, it's interesting. But it seems to me to be the way forward, given what we've been talking about now yeah. with regards to cutting edge technology. I have one question now that I would like to ask each of you. It's perhaps a little predictable, but I think it's really worth asking, especially given the subject today, because we're talking about uh, about almost slightly futuristic tendencies in, in healthcare and, and provision. So I will go around the table. I, mean, I will start with you, Lars. What do you imagine the next decade will bring? I, I think strongly that we will have this kind of interconnectivity with different kinds of sensors that will help us to stay more healthy, but also help the care to give better care and better kind of treatment. And I think one of the one maybe one of the challenges is the let's say how how can we how can the new knowledge being generated by all these kind of sensors how can that be incorporated and linked to certain kind of diseases or certain kind of treatments that we should do I mean how how can we link that into the let's call it education sector right because it's so quick it's it's an exponential growth of data. And how can that kind of exponential growth be incorporated into the educational programs? Because otherwise, it would be difficult for for doctors to. I mean, you you come with all your data and say, "Here is my data." And they say, well, I see you sleep not so much, and you have this blood pressure. What what shall I do with that? Right? Yeah, so I think this is the kind of challenge for the future. Actionable data. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you, Lars. Karuna. Next 10 years, what's going to happen? Crystal ball. I go with, uh, with Lars' um, prediction about interconnectivity. I will add to that, I can see multiple layers of things. Things will be weaved in the fabric of our lives without really seeing those actuators, those sensors. Uh, I think through, through speech inputs, we'll have access to, to a range of therapies and, and biofeedback devices. There will be multiple layers. But to me, it's really about how this personal data becomes big data and how AI can, can revolutionize this space. I mean, there is a lot of work already ongoing. And to me, before we get there, it's the issue of, of ethics and again, who's owning the data, which business models are underpinning them. I think there are big philosophical questions we have to, to, to ponder over um, in order to really push this field forward from very solid foundations. Mm, in an ethical way. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah. Elena, next 10 years, what do you think is going to be the case when it comes to how people approach treatments and, and perhaps use e, uh, e-therapies and so on? 
I guess um, I, I would touch the big um, philosophical questions because I'm more in the mental health area than in the technology area. So I see the, the bright future in the area of uh, self-empowerment, of patient empowerment um, on prevention. So I think these are great potentials of all these uh, developments we discussed today. I also see that uh, these devices on technologies uh, give us a sense of control that we can have over our lives. And this sense of control, it's interesting how real it is actually. And um, what I also, my, my, my biggest takeaway from this discussion came actually from the Corinna's question or remark that the therapist contract is, is, is an expensive factor. So I was thinking that actually, yes, the human contact, the human connection is the most expensive factor, but it's also the most valuable one. Mm. And if we're thinking about the overall cost to society of somebody who is perhaps suffering from mental conditions, then perhaps the most effective therapy is the one that ultimately is the cheapest. Um, Alexandra, next 10 years, what's it going to bring? Well, uh, so <laughs> I'm not sure whether, you know, I have a crystal ball, I can tell you what I hope for. <laughs> yeah, that would be good. Tell us what you hope for. And actually, I do hope that these are maybe are the two out of the many lessons that we can learn from the current pandemic as well, because I think this is something that we should learn from what is going on in the world. The first one, you know, the, the, the centrality of health in all policy decisions. You know, it's not only about the domain of, uh, of health policy or Ministry of Health, but the health is central to, for economy, for finance, for social systems, for health is, you know, across, it's a cross-cutting theme. And, you know, I do believe and I do hope the policymakers of all the countries countries will, you know, realize that we are paying the high price to realize it. So that uh, this is something to revert the discussion, to change the narrative about uh, healthcare in terms of spending and costs uh, to investment for the future um, in terms of also economic development and not only. And the second hope is about really opening our eyes on the importance of data and evidence to inform those decisions. because. Uh, also with these new technologies, we are really overwhelmed, overabundance of data, make it actionable, as Lars said, and uh, useful for policymakers who are now more open and more receptive with some criticism to science and evidence to inform, you know, whether to uh, invest or not to invest, to close, what to close, what to open. Uh, but uh, at least, you know, this, uh, this bridge between the science and policymakers uh, has become so evident in the current crisis. So I do hope it will stay there solid for the years to come. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We have to come out of this with improvements to the way that we operate and the way that we think Absolutely. Listen, I want to thank you all very much. That was truly fascinating, very, very interesting. And I'm grateful all, to all of you for having joined me. And I wish you all the best in your future research. And um, I look forward to hearing more about what, what's going on in your various domains in the future. Thank you for joining us today, Core Discovery Says. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Interested in what other EU-funded projects are doing to transform European health systems in the wake of COVID-19? Take a look at issue 101 at the Research EU magazine available on the Cordis website, cordis.europa.eu. Here you can also find daily news articles, interviews with researchers working on domains ranging from paleoarchaeology to space, results packs which drill down deeper, gathering groups of projects by subject area, and the magazine, which offers insights into a different subject every month in its special section.
Interested in applying for an EU research grant? Visit the Cordis website to see how your work relates to that currently being done in your field. So come and check out the research that's revealing what makes our world tick. Our next episode will consider how EU researchers are tackling pollution for a cleaner, greener Europe. Land, sea and air. What are the latest findings coming out of cutting-edge EU research? Join me to find out. We're always happy to hear from you, so drop us a line. Editorial at cordis.europa.eu Until next time.